Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. A butterfly beating its wings in the void? Leaders of one-third of the world's economy are meeting in person for the first time in three years, but the West is raising eyebrows over its weight. The 15th Annual Summit of BRICS, an acronym for Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, has commenced in Johannesburg, South Africa. This is the first in-person summit since 2019 of the platform, with the exception of Russian President Vladimir Putin. A total of 67 heads of African countries and developing countries elsewhere have been invited. Chinese President Xi Jinping is combining attending the meeting with uh, paying a state visit to South Africa, his fourth such visit in the current capacity. But if you read articles about the breaks on mainstream media, you'd be forgotten, you'd be forgiven to be shocked by the level of ignorance, dismissiveness and scepticism about the term. Is BRICS a butterfly beating its wings in the void, as some are putting it? Is the West playing down its impact intentionally? Can we expect a butterfly effect sometime in the future? I'm pleased to be joined from Shanghai by Niu Haibing, Director of the Institute for Foreign Policy Studies at Shanghai Institutes for International Studies, from Johannesburg, South Africa by Sanusha Naibu, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Global Dialogue, an independent South African-based foreign policy think tank, and from Beijing by Rafael Enrique Zelbertel, a Brazilian Esperanto expert at the Center for Asia-Pacific China International Communications Group. The warmest welcome to all of you. Let me start with you, uh, Mr. Newhaibing in Shanghai. We did a bit of research last year when we were talking about the last BRICS summit. It was a virtual one. And last year, there were practically zero interest in the group. Why the sudden interest this, sudden interest this year by the international media in the meeting? Yes, I think there are several reasons for the international community to uh, pay more attention to this summit uh, in South Africa. I think this, this is the first uh, uh, in-person meeting after the pandemic. So this is important for the uh, collective uh, multilateral uh, interaction, but also the bilateral ones. And the second reason is that the summit uh, paid attention to the uh, relationship with Africa, uh, because uh, Africa is a hot topic now, representing the rising voice and influence of the global south in the world stage. Uh, especially its concern to the uh, Ukrainian uh, crisis and also the uh, this development and uh, post-pandemic recovery. So what can the BRICS countries can do to help them? So there are a lot of reasons for us to close uh, observe the results okay. Mr. Naidu, I want to get your perspective here. I mean, uh, just now, Mr. New mentioned a couple of uh, points. I take that, and I think these are important for developing countries, for China, for uh, Brazil, India, Africa. But do the West really care about these issues? 
good day and good day to the colleagues and, and, and Ms. Naidu. Um, I, do, I think the West has suddenly woken up to the idea that the African continent can actually leverage, can actually have different options in terms of development finance, infrastructure development, access to uh, partnerships that don't necessarily only consider itself located within traditional development engagements. And I think that's part of the reason why this summit is so strategic and the amount of attention that this summit is receiving is that it comes at a time where we're also in a kind of not really a post-pandemic world, but we're coming out of a pandemic. And the pandemic has actually opened up and shown to a large extent what the international global architecture and the global economy can come to in terms of disruptions. And the disruption of the pandemic has brought the global economy to a standstill during the, the COVID-19. And so this is really about finding that way in which you can navigate this. And I think Africa, and yesterday this was a very key session in the BRICS business um, discussions mm. where Africa and the role of Africa and the relationship Africa has with the BRICS in terms of deepening trade, but also deepening Africa's intra trade dynamics and, of course, payment systems through the Pan-African payment settlement uh, system, yeah. etc., were all key issues. Well, let me bring up some numbers here, and that's what uh, China's uh, ambassador to South Africa quoted days before the meeting to explain why BRICS matter. He was talking about the collective population, for instance, of BRICS countries accounting for 42% of the world's total. Uh, we account to 18% of the world's total trade. I mean, just trade between and among the five uh, BRICS countries. The combined GDP of BRICS countries are right now standing at 31%. But what's worth noting is that this is uh, said to be the first year where the collective weight of BRICS countries' economy will surpass that of the G7. And then if you look at the voting rights of BRICS countries, both in the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, they only uh, amount to 14% each, respectively. Um, Mr. Zobetel, what kind of gap are you seeing there? Is that what BRICS is about? Is to bring up their representation in global governance to the level they deserve? Yes, for sure. As you just mentioned, the, the statistical data shows that uh, BRICS uh, must be a major player in uh, the international political and economical stage. But the institutions that we have here created after the Second World War, essentially they treat uh, the emerging economies uh, in a, an, an unfair way. So we can see that uh, we are getting more importance for the world economy, but uh, when it comes to the decision-making processes, uh, we see that the developed countries uh, keep the same voice that they had uh, almost a century ago. So it's normal that um, emerging economies will need to find an alternative. And BRICS is the best alternative that we have right now because uh, the decision-making inside BRICS is equitable. Uh, each member of BRICS has uh, the same uh, power because uh, the decisions are based in consensus. This is one very important point. And then uh, this... Uh, makes uh, BRICS be regarded by developing countries as uh, a geopolitical bloc that can represent the global south. 
Well, this when you talk about geopolitical um, factors, this will unsettle some nerds in the West. They are afraid of it. They are saying this is the tool that's employed by China to counter the dominance of the West. As I mentioned in the beginning, uh, some are calling BRICS a butterfly beating its wings in the void. There is actually a second half that's dominated by the West. Mr. Neil, what exactly is BRICS trying to do? Are they trying to form a geopolitical bloc that can counter the weight of the West? Or are they really saying global governance has not been fair and representative for developing countries? This is what we're fighting for. Yes, there are some... Uh perception that the BRICS was to confront the West as a bloc, but that's not true. Uh, since we have mentioned a lot of the low representativeness of the BRICS in the international financial institutions, that was the original reason why the BRICS countries came together. They are trying to improve the global financial governance structure by improving their uh, shares in the uh, institutions and also creating some new financial arrangements like the new development bank to provide their own contributions to the global financial governance. So in terms of this, BRICS provide some, some kind of alternative choices for the rest of the world to rely on. I think this is a, a good thing to reflect the changing uh, global economic structure of the world, the emerging economies have to find a platform to make their contributions available to the rest of the world. So I don't think this there is a confrontation, but there is some kind of uh, additional contribution and alternative choices. Well, that is being perceived at least as a challenge to the domination of the West. And it's funny because if you read these articles on The Economist or on, on the mainstream um, international media, they're like, the BRICS is formed to challenge the dominance of the West. But my question and a question for Ms. Naido is, uh, why shouldn't it be challenged? Why should the world be dominated by the West? Yeah, I mean, it's the big question that, that sits in the context of where we are and where the BRICS will probably be moving to in the next five, ten years. I think why there's this whole kind of reaction to the BRICS and the provocation that the BRICS will not necessarily be as legitimate or as credible or as the world after 1945 is really because it represents a system of possible change. And that system of possible change is not one that has always been built in for accepting change in the way that we've seen the international architecture evolve. So I think it comes with a whole lot of questions about what does this mean for us, our own kind of identity in the global arena? What does it mean for our own footprint in the global arena? And so I think it comes back to the question around uh, what colleagues have been uh, mentioning around what is the world after 1945? Is that world that we had created or the, the international gatekeepers had created after 1945, it's still relevant, but how relevant is it? And is it still fit for purpose in terms of representation? So I think with anything that emerges as a challenge to a system or as a kind of implicit disruption to a system will come with the kind of reaction you're seeing. I think the fact that you're seeing that reaction tells you that the countries of the global north are taking the BRICS very seriously, although they're trying to downplay it with the kind of narrative mm -hmm. rhetoric and reaction.
Mm. Well, um, that's, uh, that uh, is not just what I'm perceiving, I guess, and uh, not just downplaying it, but they're also highlighting some aspects of, about this group. For instance, they're highlighting the differences among the members. They're highlighting China's role, almost saying that this is a tool for China to expand its geopolitical influences and so on and so forth. Um, Mr. Zedbetel, let me come to you finally. Are they playing divide and rule? Are they trying to divide this group and highlight the so-called threats so that this group cannot be united and cannot perform the kind of functions they are designed to perform? Yes, of course. Uh, it's easy to see that because Reuters recently published an article uh, mentioning that, uh, that uh, Brazil, India and South Africa should quit BRICS and create a new uh, international bloc without participation of Russia and, and uh, China. So the, they, they, they show that Russia and China like uh, evil countries and recommend Brazil, India and South Africa to try to, to come uh, apart from these two countries. But they, uh, it's obvious that uh, this will not happen. We are uh, committed uh, as BRICS, you know, it was uh, hard work to build BRICS. BRICS is working. And besides, uh, we are very conscious that uh, we are not colonies of Western countries anymore. We are sovereign countries fighting for our own interests, our legitimate interests. The West must learn to see us as equals, right? And then we deserve equal treatment. We must uh, emphasize that BRICS does not target any country or bloc. It's just uh, supporting the legitimate interest of uh, the global south because we feel underrepresented in the international order as it is nowadays. So we are just trying to find alternatives that we consider better for ourselves. Okay. Well, I think countries are making up their mind the fact that 20-some countries are formally applying to join the blog says something, right, about what countries are seeing from this group. Anyway, despite the media reports. Anyway, many thanks to my guests, Anil Haibing from Shanghai Institutes for International Studies, Sanusha Naidu at uh, the Institute for Global Dialogue, and Rafael Enrique Zebertel from uh, and Brazilian expert at the Center for Asia-Pacific-China International Communications Group. When we come back, Japan is determined to dump nuclear wastewater into Pacific despite anxiety and doubts of its neighboring countries. What concerns need to be addressed? Stay tuned. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Despite strong opposition from its neighbors and other countries at risk, Japan is going ahead to dump nuclear contaminated wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. On Tuesday, the Japanese government announced it will start discharging the wastewater, although treated in Japan's words, into the Pacific on Thursday, August the 24th, and the process will take 30 years. The total amount will be some 1 million metric tons or 500 Olympic 
public-size swimming pools. That's despite the repeated opposition within Japan, as well as China and the Republic of Korea, for the impact on food safety, biodiversity and the environment. China's Vice Foreign Minister Sun Weidong made serious demarches to Hideo Tarumi, Japan's ambassador to China. South Korea also said it does not necessarily support the plan. Two months ago, the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, presented its report concluding that the approach and activities to the discharge of the water are quote-unquote consistent with relevant international safety standards. Why have Japan's neighbor countries not been convinced? Have their concerns been effectively addressed? Earlier, I moderated a panel discussion joined by Chi Ye, professor at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology and the School of Public Policy and Management of Tsinghua University. I was also joined by Lake Barrett, senior advisor of the Tokyo Electric Power Company, the owner of the damaged nuclear power plants, who is also a former U.S. Department of Energy official. I was joined by Dr. Arjun Makijani, president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research and advisor to Pacific Island countries on the issue, and by Duncan Curry international law expert. Currently, the release of the, the so-called treated water into the ocean and uh, is indeed a transnational, transboundary and transgenerational issue. And it will have a long-term impact on the ecosystems, on the ecology of the ocean, on the, uh, the human health. I mean, this is more than a scientific issue. It is an issue with ecological, social, and economic dimensions. We all acknowledge that. And the issues like this, we must find a consensus. In order to find consensus, we need the scientific research. We need to, to release the scientific data. We need to have a engaged debate. But so far, we do not see that yet. Indeed, we have CIEA to release the report. I think that is just the beginning of it. And we should not take it as the last verdict. And we should take it very seriously and to have a scientific debate and have a debate among the people, among all the stakeholders, all the concerned citizens. That is what is lacking right now. I think the, the, the citizens in the world and government are concerned because we do not have this debate yet. We do not have an open, engaged discussion yet. And uh, so we must halt it right now and uh, do not release before we reach that consensus. All right, uh, Mr. Barrett, let me go to you. You are a senior advisor to the TEPCO. You must have been discussing this topic or hearing about it uh, reported for quite some time now. What is the TEPCO's narrative or version of the story um, you have tried to communicate with the international community. How come uh, it seems that at least some of Japan's neighbors are not convinced that the plan is safe and durable? The treated water has been treated and it needs to be scientifically evaluated. It's been done that has happened for the last two years. It has been reviewed by the International Atomic Energy Agency, as well as by many others. A Korean de large Korean delegation uh, visited the site and reviewed the science that's going on there. The radioactivity that's in the treated water is minuscule. Uh, it meets all international safety and environmental standards. And uh, it's really gotten difficult, in my point of view, from a geopolitical point of view, where different countries have different uh, relationships, and it's been a difficult past for 100 years. 
But we need to move forward with the science uh, as to the safety of it, and it is safe, uh, and it's environmentally acceptable, and it is a small fraction of, of what's needed for protection in the future. Professor Makijani, um, we've heard uh, this uh, statement from the side of Japan and the TEPCO company. Uh, what is the viewpoint from uh, some of the uh, scientists in this field and uh, from the Pacific Island nations, which you have been serving as an independent uh, expert for their recommendations? Right, thank you. I'm one of the five expert panel members. Uh, we've been looking at this pretty intensively for some time. Our first report to the Pacific Islands Forum was issued last August. I'd be happy to put the link in the chat. We found a host of problems with the science that TEPCO had done. We found they didn't have an accurate idea of what was in the tanks. We found they had no no accurate idea of how they were going to deal with the water in the tanks that have sludges. Would the sludges actually uh, gum up the treatment system? Would it actually work? What would happen if the water wasn't clean enough? Well, they said, we'll simply run it through again and again. How many times? Well, one of the IAEA representatives actually said, well, it could be 300 times. That is not a plan. So the scientific deficiencies in the Environmental impact assessment are very serious. We have ecologists, ocean ecologists as part of our team. They are, uh, you cannot arrive at an, a conclusion based on a seriously flawed environmental assessment that the harm will be negligible. In fact, the IAEA was so eager to say the harm will be quote, unquote, unquote, negligible that the IAEA in their meeting with us on the 8th and 9th of June, 9th of June in your part of the world, said that nature creates thousands of kilos of tritium every year, whereas the correct number is a few hundred grams a year. So, so eager were they to say the harm will be negligible that the amount of natural tritium was stated wrongly by 10,000 times, but that's not my biggest worry. My biggest worry is what the IAEA is doing and what is in its report. It has announced seven documents that says are fundamental to this evaluation, and it has thrown overboard essential parts of those documents. Safety principle number four says it must be justified, which means benefits must be more than the harm. Guidance number eight says, elaborates on that. And the IAEA says, we are not going to consider justification because we came into this after the decision to dump was already made. And dump is a technical term in the 1972 Treaty on Prevention of the Marine Pollution. And that's what we should call this, dumping, because that is what it is. Oh. The IAEA so let me say one more thing. Yeah. The IAEA said that justification is Japan's responsibility. We're not going to look at it. What has Japan said? Japan, in a letter to the expert panel, said that we are not going to consider justification and benefits for every individual country. The Pacific Ocean is a society as a whole, and Japan is basically going to decide for that society as a whole. I think that's a pretty egregious statement. Because if Japan is going, if there's a decision to be made for the Pacific society as a whole, I think the people 
of that Pacific society should have a pretty big say mm. in that decision making, which has not been the case. All right. Um, I will have uh, the other guests to respond to what uh, Dr. Uh, Makijani just said. But uh, Mr. Curry, let me go to you first. You are more of an expert on the legal aspect and, of course, on the environmental aspect. What is your position uh, on this matter? And what do you think is the important messages that are not being heard now? Yeah, th thank you. There are two primary issues at, at stake here. Firstly, is the obligation not to pollute uh, areas beyond your jurisdiction and to ensure that the pollution within your jurisdiction does not spread beyond the area that, that the Japan exercises sovereign rights. In other words, a very clear, very long-standing obligation not to allow pollution to escape from your own country to the high seas or to the waters of another country. Quite honestly, there's absolutely no doubt this obligation will be breached here. There's also a general overarching obligation under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which says states have the obligation to protect and preserve the marine environment, again, not being implemented here. And then the second big concern, and Professor Upsonjani's talked about this, is the lack of an environmental impact assessment. International law is, again, very clear. When states have reasonable grounds for believing that activities may cause substantial pollution of or significant and harmful changes to the marine environment, they shall assess the potential effect of these activities by conducting an environmental impact assessment. What we have seen is not an environmental impact assessment. It, it does not, for example, look at cumulative impacts. It only looks at three species in, in, in the water. It doesn't, it doesn't, for example, look at mussels which bioaccumulate. Um, it, it hasn't, Japan hasn't carried out full consultations with neighbours, and uh, there are alternatives, we haven't touched on that, but for example, the tritium, which is the, is the radioactive isotope which we've talked about here, mm -hmm. um, only has a relatively short half-life, so if it was left in storage for another 12 years, that would improve the safety. Um, Japan could, or TEPCO, could acquire more land and build more tanks, so there are alternatives here that haven't been discussed. And lastly, there are steps that countries can take. China, Korea, concerned Pacific Island states can go to an international court called the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, which is based in Hamburg. They could obtain a, an order called, um, essentially it's like an, an injunction, um, and they could get an order, for example, requiring that Japan um, consults with its neighbours, um, does not cause serious harm to the marine environment, and so on. So international law does provide a way forward. The last thing I would say is that the world has just finished negotiating a treaty on, on marine biodiversity called right. BBNJ for short. And that treaty has very specific provisions on how to conduct an environmental impact assessment, including things I just talked about, consultation, public participation, cumulative impacts, things that we haven't seen carried out here. And it also underlines mm the concern that the entire global community has about the uh, protection and, um, and preservation of mm -hmm. marine biodiversity. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point. With me, Lucien, as always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lucien in Beijing.